Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. I am by no means an expert in world religions or anything like that, but I do know that one of the things that is distinctive about the Christian faith is how it calls us to engage every part of who we are. More than once, Jesus will say in the Gospels that the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, every component of our being. We do not just have a physical faith that says it does not matter what you believe, it does not matter what you think about God as long as you do the right actions. Uh, the biblical scholar N.T. Wright, he, he says that one of the things that was distinctive about Christianity from its very founding was that it was what he calls, the word he uses is it was bookish. Uh, he says that uh, the average first century person in the Roman Empire showing up for a, a Christian worship service, if they had no context walking into it, if they showed up, they would be almost as likely to wonder if they had wandered into some sort of educational institution as they would be to assume they had just walked into a worship service. And, and hear me when I say that, that does not mean that our faith is solely intellectual. I said earlier, our faith does not say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you do the right things. And on the flip side of that, we also don't believe that it doesn't matter what you do as long as you believe the right things. Our faith engages all of what we are. Our, our faith does not say that the more Bible facts you know, the better of a Christian you are. I've met plenty of people who know a lot about the Bible and don't look very much like Jesus, and I've also witnessed the opposite on plenty of occasions as well. But, but I say all of that to say that believing in Jesus calls us to engage all of us, heart, soul, mind, and strength, our intellect as well as our physical body. It does not call us, our faith does not call us to ignore difficult questions in life. It calls us to engage those questions well. So in order to try to do that as a, as a community of believers and to hopefully try to model what it looks like for us to do that as individuals, over the next few weeks we're going to be in this series called What About? Uh, my guess is that if you have even considered following Jesus for really any length of time, you have had a question or two or three or four that you were not sure if Christianity could answer. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe you grew up in a church where questions weren't allowed to be asked. Uh, that if you ever uh, asked a question of any sort, you were just told to not ask questions, to just believe it and just go along with the flow. And that made you uncomfortable. Maybe you've had questions where there just didn't seem to be an answer. And all, of your, all you're asking, you're studying, you're reading, it just seemed like uh, that following Jesus was taking a, uh, taking a jump and hoping someone would be there to catch you on the other side. And if that's you this morning, first off, I'm glad you're here. This is the place to be with those questions. And second off, like I've said, our faith never calls us to shy away from difficult questions. And so we might not answer every single question for all time over the next few weeks, but we will reflect on 
how our faith calls us to engage difficult questions, and I hope you will come along for the ride. I might regret preaching this sermon on Mother's Day, but I, I think it'll be okay if you'll bear with me. Uh, because the, the medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas, he said that theology, the study of God, was the queen of the sciences, ruling over every other realm of study and thought. And I certainly believe that to be true. Uh, we'll never fully understand everything about the infinite God of the universe, and yet at the same time, that reality does not call us to uh, stick our heads in the sand, never question anything, and just fall in line. I I have read and heard stories, maybe you have as well, of people who followed Jesus for a time, maybe were in ministry for a time, and have decided to walk away from that faith. And, and stories like that grieve me for any number of reasons, but one of the reasons in particular that, that can grieve me so much is that so often the questions being asked that supposedly didn't have any kind of answer are questions that have good answers. It's just the person asking them, uh, didn't look in the right places or didn't look long enough or hard enough. And so they decided following Jesus wasn't worth it. Uh, because our faith engages every part of who we are, we stand in a tradition of people who, because of their love for God, have devoted their lives to study for their own sake and for the sake of the church so that we might know God and be equipped to live faithfully as his people. And we'll be attempting to do that in a small way over the course of this series. No matter how long you've been following Jesus, God invites us in to, with our questions. Not, not so that we get ammunition to be able to win intellectual arguments, but so that we might be better equipped to live faithfully as his people in the world and engage every part of who we are as we follow Jesus. And that's my heart behind this series. My goal is to not stand up here each week and build a, a house of cards and show you how you can knock it down so that you can win arguments on Facebook. My hope and my prayer is that all of us, as a community, would come away as people more encouraged to trust in Jesus with everything that we are so that we can do what our mission statement says we are here to do as a church, and that is to glorify our God. So that's the conviction behind this series. And my hope is, as we work through these questions, you would engage with them. Because the story of Scripture is more interested, or maybe I should say is foremost interested, in equipping us for faithfulness where we are, instead of inviting us in to speculate wildly. And that's a truth we can find in any number of places, but it's been really driven home to me over the past couple weeks as I've been preparing for this sermon in particular, uh, trying to formulate some sort of answer to the question of, what about those who have never heard the gospel? It's a question that might make us uneasy. A, a few years ago, I was preaching at a youth event um, on, a, on a Sunday night, and I got done preaching. I'm standing in the back of the room during the, the closing of the service, the closing songs, and I had a kid come back to me and ask me this exact question. It had nothing to do with anything that had been said from stage that night. Maybe they just weren't listening to me very well, but um, it was a question that bothered them. What do we do with people in the world who have never heard the message of Jesus? 
If we believe that salvation comes through Jesus, and we also know that there are people in the world who have not heard the message of Jesus, then we need to think through what Scripture has to say on this matter. Uh, we can't resort to our feelings, what we would like to be true. We, we need to be grounded in God's Word. So to try to do that, I want to offer um, and one answer to this question by pointing to three truths from three different passages of Scripture. And then, after doing that, I want to look at a story from the book of Acts that I think demonstrates these truths in action. And I promise it won't take as long as that summary just sounded like it would take. It's not two sermons in one. So first, three truths from Scripture. First, God desires for all people to be saved. We see that in 2 Peter 3, 9. Peter is uh, writing to people who are dealing with opposition. Uh, Peter is writing to people who are, are being critiqued because they've been proclaiming the message of Jesus, and the message of Jesus says that one day he will return, and these opponents of the church look around and they say, Jesus hasn't shown back up yet, this message must be false. And in response to that criticism, Peter writes that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. The Lord is also not slow in moving to the next slide. Okay. Sorry, Adam. He won't do it again now. <laughs> instead, instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God desires for all people to know him. So whatever else we might say about this issue this morning, we have to keep that truth in mind. God is not in heaven dividing up the world, only picking out select few people to be his. He desires for all people to know him. That's our first truth. Second, the second truth, salvation comes through Jesus alone. In John 14, verses 6 and 7, uh, Jesus is being asked by his disciples. He, he has told them that he's going to leave. He's no longer going to be with them, and they're unsettled by this. They're asking him questions. One of the questions they ask is, well, how are, we, how are we going to know how to get to God if you are no longer with us? And Jesus answers them in John 14, verses 6 and 7, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus did not come to this earth to show us a way to God. He came to be the way himself. His death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead opened up the path to life with our God, and that path is only accessible through his blood. So whatever else we might say this morning, we have to keep that truth in mind. Scripture is clear. Jesus is the only path to God which is a truth we'll come back to here in a few weeks, but it's key for us to keep in mind as we think through the issue we're dealing with this morning. God desires for all people to be saved. Jesus is the only way to God. Lastly, Scripture is clear that God sends his people with the message of the gospel. In the last few verses of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, after Jesus' resurrection, he says to his followers, it's, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus proclaims he has all authority because he is resurrected from the dead. And in light of that authority, he commissions his followers to go into all the world with the message of the gospel. So whatever else we might say, we have to at least say that God calls us as his people to do something about the fact that there are people in the world who do not know him. If we truly believe that the gospel of Jesus brings life and transformation for all the world, then we should desire to do whatever we can to bring that message to the entire world. So God desires for all people to be saved. Salvation comes through Jesus. God sends his people to go with that message. Those are three foundational truths to guide our thoughts this morning. And they maybe don't answer the question as thoroughly as we would like, but Scripture seems to be more concerned with the real world than our hypothetical. And so to be totally transparent, I might not answer this question as thoroughly as you might like this morning, and I think that might be okay. My heart is not to ignore a real question, but to try to answer this question in line with how Scripture seems to answer it, which is from a posture of not calling us to speculate, but to respond to the message of Jesus for ourselves where we are. Before we can think about how this might impact other people, we have to deal with how it impacts us. How God is calling us to be a part of the mission Jesus gave us to go into all the world and make disciples. So to help us get a glimpse of that, I want to look at Acts chapter 17, where Paul announces the lordship of Jesus in Athens. Uh, Paul comes to this great Greek city and has some downtime while he's there. If you have your Bible open in front of you, uh, you can see that in Acts 17, verse 15, Paul is fleeing from people who have been opposing and undermining his ministry. He comes to Athens, and he's sent there to wait, uh, to go ahead of his companions, Silas and Timothy, and wait for them in Athens uh, to show up and help him. So Paul comes to Athens. We might think uh, he's got some downtime. He can rest. He can recuperate. Uh, it's been a hard stretch out on the mission field. He can, he can enjoy this great city. There's so many uh, historical sites to witness. And yet, if you notice there in, in Acts 17, 16, it says that Paul was distressed. If you're reading a different translation, it might say Paul was provoked by the fact that the city of Athens was full of idols. Everywhere he looked, there were, there were temples, there were shrines, there were altars being built to, to idols, to deities of any stripe that you could imagine. Uh, one ancient Greek writer said that on the streets of Athens, it was easier to find a god than a man. There were that many idols around the city, and Paul encounters that for himself. And Paul's reaction to that is not to uh, take the posture of an anthropologist and think, well, that's, this is an interesting culture. I'm going to observe what goes on here and see uh, what that reveals to me about this part of the world. His, his reaction, there in verse 17, is to preach the message of Jesus. He goes to the synagogue in Athens and, and shows the Jewish people there that the Messiah that they have been anticipating, they've been looking forward to, has come, and his name is Jesus. He, he goes out in the marketplace as people are walking and conversing and doing business, sharing Jesus with anyone who will listen. 
Word starts to get around as Paul proclaims that Jesus is resurrected and, and it gets to the Areopagus, this group of people who were sort of the cultural elite of their day who would gather to hear ideas about religion and morality, so on and so forth. And I actually have a picture to show what this area looks like today. Now, a friend of mine was in Athens a few weeks ago. He didn't go there because of me, but he was there. And uh, I told him I was going to be preaching this passage, and so he took this picture. He is standing on the site of the Areopagus. And you can see there in kind of the upper right-hand corner of the picture there, uh, maybe you can't make them out very well, but you can see uh, pillars and structures and things like that. Um, and that is um, the Acropolis of Athens, full of temples, including the Parthenon, which you've surely heard of or remember from history class or have seen pictures, this is roughly the place where Paul is standing as he makes the speech we're going to, I'm going to read here in just a few moments. This is where Paul meets with this group of people who are interested in hearing about this message Paul has been proclaiming. Maybe the best parallel we have to our world today would be to say that Paul's invited to give a TED talk. He's saying things these people have never heard before. They'd like to learn more. And so from this location... I want to pick up in our text, starting at Acts 17 at verse 22. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul's quoting from a Greek poet there. As some of your own poets have said, he quotes again, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, oh, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Sorry if you just had to hear me taking a drink there. Uh, there are all kinds of things we could say about this passage, but I want to just point out a few things that are significant for how he presents the message of Jesus to people who have never heard it. He begins by acknowledging his surroundings. 
If you remember the picture we looked at just a few moments ago, you can imagine Paul standing there in front of this group of people and saying, I can, as he says, I can see that you're all very religious. And as he's doing that, he's pointing to the temples that he can see from where he's standing that overlook the entire city. And yet in the midst of all of these gods and these religious practices, he notices that uh, there's an altar that says on it, to an unknown God. In the midst of all their religion, they had taken the extra step of covering their bases, putting up an, an altar to, uh, to, uh, just to an unknown God, a deity that they had, had maybe missed. They didn't want to be left out to dry if a God showed up they'd never heard of before. And from that observation, Paul says he is here to share with them the identity of this unknown God. This unknown God is the creator of the world and everything in it. You and I never have and never will, this side of heaven, look at something that was not created by God and is sustained by Him every second of its existence. And because that is true, it is impossible to try to contain or summarize all that God is, especially within any kind of man-made structure. He is far bigger than we could ever contain in one, uh, in one culture, in one building, because he rules over all. Contrary to what the Greeks thought that Paul's speaking to here, they were not superior to the peoples around them. They were created by the same God that everyone else was created by. And everything they had accomplished started, had its beginning in the fact that they were created by, by this God. And yet that's not the end of the story. All the work God has done in creation has been for the sake of relationship. God did not create because he had an unmet need in himself. Uh, he created out of the abundance that he had already enjoyed. And the pinnacle of his creation is humanity. And the goal of creating humanity was and is that we might experience the perfect relationship that the triune God has enjoyed amongst itself for all eternity. God created us so that we might know him. And it is possible to know him, even in part, through his creation. Paul fleshes this out a little more in the book of Romans in chapter 1, where he says God's eternal power and his divine nature are visible in the world around us. It's possible to look at the world we inhabit and know it was created by an intelligent, powerful being for a specific purpose. And yet, as Paul continues in Romans 1, he shows humanity has rejected what God has revealed about himself, has gone our way, our own way, and, and the result of that is the brokenness we experience in our world on a daily basis. As Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and yet the story of humanity is one of us going our own way. And that means we all stand guilty before him. And because God created our world and us, that we might know him, because he's our creator and our sustainer, that means all of humanity is accountable to him. When we look at what he's revealed, even what he's revealed in creation, we're accountable when we choose to go our own way instead of seeking our creator. As created beings, we are responsible to the one who has created us. 
if, if you were by some chance to read through my sermon notes and then you came back to me and tried to tell me what you thought I was trying to communicate in my sermon, I have the right to say whether or not you have understood me correctly, if you've understood my notes correctly, because I'm the author of the notes. And in the same way, God is the creator of humanity, and because God is the creator of humanity, humanity is accountable to Him. Uh, we have each rejected Him, and the story could end there. And yet, God, because His desire through creation was that we might know Him, He does not give up on us. He continues to steadily and patiently reveal Himself to His people, and that reaches its culmination in Jesus. We could never fully contain or explain God through our own efforts. And so God came to us as Jesus, and the story of humanity hinges around Him coming to earth, His death on the cross, and His resurrection from the dead. And because that has taken place, God has made a way for us to know Him. And humanity has been called to respond, to acknowledge that this God who has created us and placed us on this earth and rules over all things, and invites us into relationship with him, he has called us to respond. The resurrection of Jesus demonstrates once and for all, Jesus is who he claimed to be. All of humanity will be judged by God, our creator, in light of how we have responded to the death of Jesus. Whatever other questions we might ask hinge around that, must be viewed through that lens. And as Paul makes that point, it maybe doesn't have the positive response we would hope for. Some start to mock him. Some think they might be interested and want to hear more. And Paul proclaims that Jesus was dead and came back to life. And as that message is, is heard, two people were told about respond, find life in this message that transforms everything. And that same message is the good news that reveals to the world who God is, reveals what has gone wrong with ourselves and our world, and reveals how Jesus is the solution. That is the message announced by Paul, and it's one we announce today. If God is who Paul proclaims him to be, and if we believe in that same message, that Jesus is the Son of God who has come so that we might have life as we were created to have it with our Creator God, then our call is to respond to that message through acknowledging the Lordship of Jesus and announcing the Lordship of Jesus to all people so that the world might know that they too can experience that same offer of life with God for themselves. And that might not be as clear or direct of an answer to the question we started with this morning as we have hoped, but I do believe it is the answer Scripture gives us. And we might hear that answer and think, well, that's not how I would do it, or I think God's more like this, that, or the other. And like I've already said this morning, I, I'm not afraid of your questions or concerns, and more importantly, God is not. But as we consider those questions, it is important we hold in our minds who God is. If God is who we believe Him to be, the all-knowing creator, ruler, sustainer, and judge of the universe who loves humanity so deeply, He sent His Son so that we might know Him and is inviting anyone who puts their faith in Jesus into life with Him. That means that at the end of the day, for all of our questions around this issue or any other one, the God who is perfect in every way will make the right decision. God can be trusted. 
this issue just as much as any other one. So may we trust in Him as Scripture calls us to with the big things as we are faithful we find ourselves. And that sort of faithfulness I think is more important than our, our hypothetical speculations. I'd much rather deal with how we have first and foremost responded to Jesus for ourselves. Before we worry about how others respond, we have to respond ourselves. And from our response of acknowledging the Lordship of Jesus, we are called to then announce the Lordship of Jesus to those, to those around us. So the question of what about those who have never heard the gospel might not be a bad, I don't think it's a bad question. I just, I just wonder if there are better questions we need to ask instead. Questions like, have I experienced life with God for myself yet? Have I acknowledged the lordship of Jesus in my own life? Questions like, have, do those around me, have they heard the message of the gospel of Jesus? Questions like, how might God be leading me, leading the people around me to participate in the work of announcing the message of the gospel to the world? Those questions are not hypothetical. Those questions call us to engage with the message of the gospel for ourselves. And I don't know what responding to those questions might look like for each and every one of us. It might take you down the street. It might take you around the globe. But it is all a response to who God is and how he has revealed himself to us in Jesus. And as a church, we respond to that commission in all sorts of ways that Jesus has given us. But one of the ways we do that is through our partnership with ministries across the globe. So if you're wondering what it looks like to participate in announcing the Lordship of Jesus, that might take on all sorts of facets in your life or in the life of this church or people around you, but one of the ways that we do that as a church, and you can learn more about how you can be a part of that, uh, is through coming to Sunday school next week, which is not just a plug to get, get you to come to Sunday school. But next week, during Sunday school, we're going to do it a little different. It's going to be out here in the fellowship hall. It'll be everyone from sixth grade on up. And we're doing it out there so you can have snacks during Sunday school. And Isaac and I are going to be uh, interviewing our own Fred Hansen about the ministry he works for, TCM, which does work all across Europe, equipping church leaders, building up the church so that it can thrive. And that ministry takes on all sorts of different things, but one of the things they're very focused on right now, you might imagine, is caring for, providing for those connected to their ministry who have had to flee from Ukraine. And we've already been partnering with them as a, as a church. Fred was over there um, over the past, in the past couple months. And I hope you will come to hear about what God is doing through TCM as they announce the message of Jesus and equip others to be able to do that as well, and how we as a congregation can continue to support them in that work. Because that work is just one expression of what it looks like to participate in acknowledging and announcing the Lordship of Jesus as we respond to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Of all the questions we might ask, about how our faith interacts with the world around us, of all the questions we might ask about whether or not our faith is valid, the most important question we can ask is whether or not Jesus is alive. 
Because if Jesus' tomb is empty, if our answer to the question of whether or not Jesus is alive is yes, he is alive right now, then every other question we might ask has to be understood in light of that belief. So maybe you need to answer that question for yourself this morning, of whether or not Jesus is alive and whether or not you need to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus over your own life. Maybe you've answered that question before, You've answered that question as yes, but you're wondering what the next steps are into a deeper life with God as you announce His Lordship to those around you. Maybe you want to learn more about what it looks like to partner with those announcing the Lordship of Jesus all over the world. I don't know what what it looks like for you, but I do know God is calling us to be a part of the answer to this question by going into all the world, announcing the Lordship of Jesus so that all people may know Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words of life, the message of the gospel that tells us that Jesus has come and died and risen from the dead so that we might have life with you. And we thank you that you've given us that message and you invite us in to be a part of it as we follow Christ's command at the end of Matthew to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Give us wisdom for how we can do that where we are. Father, I pray that you would bring to mind for each and every one of us thoughts of what responding to that truth might look like, be it people, ministries, interactions, whatever it might be. Father, we want to be a part of the answer to this question, so give us wisdom for how we can do that. Father, we pray for those who who have not acknowledged your lordship, whether they're here or somewhere else, Father. We pray that you would give us wisdom for how to uh, walk with them and draw them near to you. We pray that your spirit would work here and around the globe as more and more people might come to acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus, the Lord of all things, so that, we might, so that all people might know you and have the life that you created us for as we live under, in your kingdom. It's in your son. It's because of your son. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French. 